Good morning, my name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, anybody know what's happening tonight at 4.30? Partner night. Partner night. Partner night is right. That rhymed, I didn't mean to, I apologize. Um, <laughs> so partner is our word for member. So it's, uh, it's not just simply like a formal word for like an executive meeting or like a business meeting. That's not what it is. Uh, it, it's our word for member. So it's for all who consider Risen Church your home church and are officially partnering together with us in this gospel of grace. So there are uh, many words in scripture like membership. Member is a good word. That It is a biblical term. Many churches use that term. But partner uh, is also a biblical word. It comes from the Greek word koinonia uh, in scripture. And so um, it means like to share or to partner or to fellowship in Christ. And so that's what we do here. Um, and so uh, again, like if you haven't filled out the partner form uh, already and you consider Risen Church your home church, then I want to encourage you to fill that partner form out on our website under the resources tab. You go to risenchurchvb.com and then you see the resources tab, and then it'll drop down and say, become a partner, and you'll see a form that'll take you through a number of questions that go beyond uh, just your name and your email address. Like, it's going to provide information for you to get to know us a little bit better, and it's going to provide questions for us to get to know you a little bit better, um, like how you became a Christian, questions about baptism, things like that. Um, and again, the whole point of it all is to partner together in this gospel, because that's what church actually is. So, tonight uh, at 4.30, we're going to come together, we're going to eat together, we're going to worship together, we're going to pray together, and we're going to talk a little bit about what uh, God is doing in our church, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going. So, uh, again, church is not just an event that we attend every now and then. It's a people that we belong with and partner with in order to run the race that God's placed before us well. So to partner together as his disciples, to make disciples who make disciples from the neighborhood to the nations. That's what we're about. Amen? And so now some of you may consider this your home church, and you want to officially partner with us, but you feel like maybe life is kind of swallowing you right now. Anybody ever been there? Some of you may be there. Some of you are like, I am perpetually there. Um, and maybe you're thinking, you know, I'm going to get life under control and then I'm going to partner with the church, um, because then, you know, I'll have my stuff together, you know, and it'll be good. Listen to me closely. This is important. I want you to know that it is okay to struggle. It is okay to struggle in this life and to partner with us is to partner with us in the struggle. Amen. Like, that's, this is, that's what it's about. Like, you don't have to be perfect to join this church. Because nobody is perfect but Jesus. Like, that's why we come together and behold him and point one another to him. We don't point one another to each other. Because that's just riding the struggle bus together and the blind leading the blind, right? So, uh, the point here is that you don't have to have it all together before you come to Jesus, right? And so, the real question is, is, do you desire Jesus? So just like you don't have to have it all together before you come to Jesus, you come to him as you are, and you say, God, I want to know you. I truly want to follow you. 
And so that's what we do as a church. So this is what we're doing. When we partner together, we're saying we don't have it all together. That's why we need him and each other to do this thing called Christianity or, and or life in general in following Jesus, right? And so um, the real question, though, is do you actually desire him, right? Do you desire to partner in this gospel of grace with him and with one another? So to take his call to be a disciple seriously, like to be a disciple and to make disciples, is that something that you actually take seriously or just something that you kind of like, eh, you know, that's like for the professional Christians or like the, the like, you know, pastors or, you know, the radical Christians, right? But listen to me. Radical actually means, it, it, it means source. It means root, like the word radish. It's the Latin term. Radical means to the root, to the source. So we point to the source. To be a radical Christian just means you're a Christian, that's what it means, that you're a disciple of him, and you radically look to him. Amen? That's what it means. Again, it does not mean that we're perfect. It just means that we're trying to be intentional in things like community, in serving, in generosity. Not perfect, not perfection, but intentional. It's simply about the posture of our hearts looking to the source. That's what it's about. So this is what it looks like to partner together in this gospel of grace. So again, the word partner comes from the Greek word koinonia, which is used a lot throughout the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated partner, sometimes it's translated as fellowship, sometimes it's translated as share. But it's something that every Christian is actually called to because the heartbeat of our Savior is for the unity and the mission of his people for God's glory. That's what it's about. Making disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ is the top priority of the universe. And that doesn't happen in isolation. God has chosen to do it in and through his people who gather together, partner together, unify together, and are commissioned together, filled with his spirit for his purpose and his glory in real, authentic gospel community. This is what church people are all about. This thing is a team sport. Amen? Amen. So if you haven't filled out the partner form, I encourage you to do so um, and then meet us here at 430. But again, I, please don't feel pressured in this. This is not a pressured thing. This is an invitation. It's not a sales pitch. Okay? Like, hear me. This is an honor to walk through this journey with all of you, no matter where you're at on that journey. You may be here for the first time. You may be here for the second time, third time, fourth time, whatever. However long this thing takes, we want to walk, and we're committed to walk through this thing with you as you discover who he is. Amen? That's what this thing is about. So ultimately, we are really glad you're here. I want you to feel welcome. I want you to know that you are welcome and that you are loved here. Whether you feel it or not, I want you to know that you are, okay? And so uh, whether you're a partner or not, again, um, I, I want you to know that you are welcome here. Um, and, and if we can help clarify anything, please don't hesitate to come talk to me or any of our other leaders. Uh, it, it actually matters a lot. Don't let those opportunities pass you by. 
Um, we'd love to talk with you, and you're not going to get like some condescending thing. We're going to actually want to walk and, and meet you where you are, because that's what Jesus does, right? So, um, so again, like, I want to encourage you. One of the things that we do here is uh, we, we do try five. So that means try like consecutive five weeks in a row of checking out the church and checking out what our community groups are all about, because our church is way more than just Sunday morning services. Right? Again, we're not just an event to attend, we're a people to belong with and to partner with in Christ. So that's what church is really about. That's what we see in the scriptures of what a local church is, which is a great transition now into the sermon this morning. So <laughs> that was the mini-sermon before the sermon, so sit tight, we're, gonna, we're, we're rolling today. So um, we've been walking through the last few chapters in the book of Hebrews in our series called Church people. That's the series name, and, and when we, we hear the term church people, or when most people use the term church people, especially in society today, it is not always a very positive thing. So in this series, we've been taking a look at who church people actually are as Jesus sees church people. Real church people, his church people. The goal here isn't to present church people through rose-colored glasses, but to see church people as Jesus sees them. And when we see one another as he does, we're actually going to see each other as we truly are. Not even see yourself as you truly are, through his eyes. So if you have been hurt by church people, I want you to know this is not an attempt to minimize or to justify or to excuse like toxic behavior, right? Not at all. But I do want to magnify the power and the significance of forgiveness. Because this is who we are. This is who we're called to be. We're forgiven people. We've been forgiven much, and so we're called to forgive much and to receive forgiveness, both from him and from one another. I'm going to back up here without falling over stands if I can. Um, so again, church people are not perfect people, but we are perfectly forgiven people, and we are perfectly loved people, and we are perfectly positioned people to proclaim and demonstrate the grace of Christ to each other and a world that is in desperate need of it. This is who we are. So this series is about reclaiming the why behind the what for gathering together and loving one another as God's beloved, spirit-filled, redeemed, and gospel-commissioned covenant community. So when we see church people through those gospel lenses, as Jesus sees church people, it's going to change our perspective entirely. And I pray that this series has done that in some ways um, already. So this morning, though, we have come to chapter 13 in the book of Hebrews which is the final chapter in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to walk through the whole chapter this morning, all 25 verses. So honestly, guys, look, there, is, there are probably 25 separate sermons in this one chapter. Um, so I'm going to do my best to kind of give you the broad 35,000-foot overview of what's being communicated here, because I believe this final chapter is like a summary overview of what's been communicated throughout the letter, right? So this is kind of like a fi final, like, how then shall we live rundown for Christian life. That's what we get here. And so I think he wants us to take this in in a big gulp, all right? So this sermon uh, is probably going to feel like a ton of information is being thrown at you, right? If it does, in some ways, 
that's intentional, okay? Like, I want you to not, I want you to try to not feel overwhelmed. Like, I don't want you to check out, right? I want you to think of this as being just kind of like washed in the word of God, all right? Like, you might not get every drop, but I want you to lean in. Um, and if you do, you lean into the spirit of God. He's going to envelop you with these themes that absolutely saturate the Bible, and they bring this gospel to life. You're going to see things in this that we're going to mention here that are going to bring the rest of the Bible as you read it even on your own. You're going to be like, that's what that that meant. You're going to see dots connected. And it's going to bring you into a deeper, more lively relationship with God in and through his word. Because my hope for all of us is that when we open his Bible, our hair is blown back by his Holy Spirit. Amen? So, again, I promise that your spirit's going to soak up even more than your mind will this morning. So let's lean in. So for the past few chapters, we've been encouraged over and over again to draw near to God and to draw near to each other, okay? So Hebrews 10, uh, a few weeks ago, we kicked it off with Hebrews 10 and verse uh, 24 and 25 says this. It says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That day is judgment day. Um, and so then chapter 11 just unloads with story after story of men and women who faithfully did exactly that. They weren't perfect people, but they leveraged their lives by faith for the kingdom and the glory of God. Right? And then chapter 12 launched directly out of all that line of thought and gave us this like practical metaphor of a race. Um, And and it's to describe the calling on every true Christian's life. And it says this in in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that he just talked about in chapter 11, he says, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. So the rest of chapter 12 then describes the lifestyle of a true Christian as a life of intentionality to draw near, even to to run near to God and to one another. And what we see is that it requires a lot of focus and even discipline. Dun, dun, dun. Right? So like runners in a race, encouraging each other onward toward the upward call in Christ Jesus as we're surrounded by this heritage of other faithful believers that are all just cheering us forward even in difficult but extremely joyful, this, this extremely joyful journey that we have with and for Jesus. That's, that's our circumstance that we, we're just praying about and singing about, right? So we rivet our eyes on Jesus, we consider the heritage of courage and testimony that surrounds us, and we run the race that he set before us with discipline, even in the difficulty, because of the joy that's set before us, which is Jesus himself. But this is a race of grace, not perfection. There's no room for judgment in this thing because our eyes are on him, not on one another. Our eyes are on one another in an attempt to encourage one another to look to him who is showering us with grace. So we don't look to discipline to save us. We don't look to each other to save us. We look to Jesus, and we run this race in the grace that he's provided us with. But we are called to run. We're not called to drift forward or mosey forward or just kind of like, ah, whatever, you know, it's grace. You know, 
it's to, we're called to run forward with our eyes riveted on him to draw near to him and to not shrink back because precisely because we've come to Zion not Sinai which we talked about last week one we shrink back from one we draw near to in celebration and joy feel free to catch that online (laughs) Uh, we talked about that last week so this morning we have come to chapter 13 which flows out all of that and it's summarizing the Christian life by comparing it to an Old Testament animal sacrifice. That's exciting, right? <laughs> and, and, and so just because, though, and it actually is, like, I, I, this, this is great, and just because the Holy Spirit is super relevant all the time, you know what that offering or that sacrifice was called in the Old Testament? It's not the sin offering, right? A lot of people are very familiar with the sin offering. That's part of it. But there's a lesser known yet more common sacrificial offering in the Old Testament that's used here to characterize our lives now, and it's called the Thanksgiving offering. So I'm going to explain what that means as we go, but here's what I want you to get this morning. It actually comes directly out of that mission statement that my wife, Hannah, read earlier that you might not have been able to hear because the anointing of the sound didn't kick in yet, but... um, (laughs) This is why we exist, right? Like we exist to share life in Christ, our risen Lord, with each other, our city, and beyond. This is our mission. This is who we are. It's what we're about. It's what we do. So the thing that I want you to get this morning is this. Drawing near to God and each other and inviting all who don't know him into this gospel family is how we demonstrate true thanksgiving for the grace of God in Christ. Like, this is our offering as church people, and God doesn't just accept it. He loves it. He loves, like, you want to put a smile on the king of eternity's face. This is how we do it. By drawing near to God and to each other and inviting all who don't know him into this gospel family. Even when it's difficult. Even when it's a sacrifice. Even when people are difficult. You're like, people are difficult? Yeah, even church people, right? This is what life in Christ looks like. This is what a thankful people do, not because people are worthy. If you do it for people just because of people and because they're worthy, guess what? That's going to run out. That thing's got an expiration date on it. You know why? Because we sense the justice that fallen people deserve. But because Jesus is worthy, and Jesus deserves the spoils of his sacrifice, we love one another because we've caught a glimpse of the way he loves other people, and because we've caught a glimpse of the way he loves us, and he's forgiven us, and we have a picture and a glimpse of the way, and and we've experienced this love and forgiveness, and so we offer it to one another and the world around us. This is our calling, and this is how we demonstrate true thanksgiving for the grace of God in Christ. So turn with me to Hebrews 13. We're going to, Hebrews 13, verse 1 through 25. We're going to walk through this chapter together, and then we'll close our time with the ultimate thanksgiving meal we call communion. So what does this acceptable thanksgiving offering look like? 
Hebrews 13, verse 1. Turn with me there. Here we go. Right out of the gate. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Man, we could camp out there for like weeks. <laughs> brotherly love is a reference to the covenant family of God. Right? It's the Greek word Adelphoi. It's brothers and sisters, the local church. He says, continue doing this. He highlights it, right? But then it's clarified that it's not just about us. We aren't the us for and no more club, right? We've been commissioned to embrace the world around us into this family in Christ. And so he uses a Greek word here that we've already heard once in chapter 10 when we're told not to neglect gathering together. It's actually a highlighted phrase that we see in Hebrews. So he uses this Greek word, and it's the word epilanthonomai, okay? Epilanthonomai is the Greek word that he uses here to, in regards to showing hospitality to strangers. So to, not to neglect, epilanthonomai, epilanthonomai, wake up mouth. Epilanthonomai. And so this word is used to emphasize the things that we have a tendency to forget or neglect. So we're told, don't forget, don't neglect. Epilanthonomai. The priority of gathering together as a church family. Consistently. That's what it's talking about. That's what we read in chapters 10. And again, we have to be intentional in this. It often requires priority, intentionality, even sacrifice sometimes because we have an enemy that does not want us to gather together. And then here again, it's used to help us guard against the neglect of showing hospitality or inviting even the stranger or the outsider into this family. Right? Don't neglect it. Epilanthonomai. It's easy to get comfortable and to forget that we've been blessed to be a blessing to the world around us and that we've even been commissioned with this good news that is for everyone. No matter what your background is, no matter what your heritage, social class, none of it matters. All that matters is you got a heart that beats and you're human. He came for you and this family is also an invitation for you to join by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so this theme, it, it, man, this is like, again, it, it, it's almost as though we're being reminded here that to share life in Christ, our risen Lord with each other, our city and beyond or something. Right? Like this theme saturates the entire Bible because this has been God's heart for his people since the beginning. To let brotherly love continue and to not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Right? And then look at the next line just to drive this thing home. We're going to drive this thing all the way home. Look at uh, the next line here. So it says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Say, what? Like, that's one of those things where you're like, I don't know what to do with that. I'm just going to keep reading. But I want to I encourage you to not do that because this is extremely powerful, right? So what's this talking about? Well, the short answer is this thing is supernatural. There's a lot more going on than what we can see. That's the short answer. But there's even more to it than that. 
All right? In fact, this is a reference to the way that God tests and even judges people throughout the Bible. Remember, this letter was written to a predominantly Jewish church in the first century who were very familiar with the Old Testament. Okay? And so this is a reference to the multiple times that God sends angels to his people throughout history. And so in Genesis 18, again, the Hebrews or these Jewish Christians that were, he's writing to in this first century church, um, they would have been really familiar with these stories. And so in Genesis 18, angels show up to Abraham's home, a man named Abraham, and he doesn't realize that they're these divine beings until after he's offered them hospitality. He just thinks they're regular humans. He welcomes these strangers into his tent and he offers them food. And then suddenly it's revealed to him that they are angels of the Lord. Like, good thing he didn't reject them. Right? Or like send them away. Because that was what their intention was, is just to continue on. And then in Genesis 19, two of those angels, there were three of them, two of those angels go down to Sodom to judge it. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? Maybe you've heard of that one. And you know why they intend, or, or excuse me, you know how they intend to judge the city? It says that they intend to spend the night in the city square. This was their method of judging the hearts of this wicked city. But on their way, a man named Lot stops these strangers, even though they intend to pass him by on their way. But he calls to them and invites them into his home, and he offers them food. And when he does, it's suddenly revealed to him that these are angels of the Lord, but only after he's offered them hospitality. Lot and his family were the only ones who were offered, who offered them hospitality, and they were the only ones who were spared from the judgment that rained down on that city. Later in the book of Judges, chapter 6, the same thing happens to a, na- a man named Gideon. He's hiding in a wine press um, in, in Judges, chapter 6, and, and he's hiding in a wine press, and he's afraid for his life from his enemies, and then a stranger shows up and begins to encourage him. And Gideon offers this stranger some food and hospitality, and suddenly the true nature of this stranger is revealed to be an angel of the Lord, and God speaks powerfully over this man named Gideon. And then again, in Judges 13, the soon-to-be parents of one of Israel's mighty judges named Samson, they're visited by a stranger who tells Samson's mother, who was barren at the time, that she will soon have a son and to name him Samson. And they're so thankful that they go out of their way to offer food and hospitality. And as soon as they do, it's revealed that he's an angel and he's suddenly caught up to heaven in a flame of fire. In the New Testament, there's even a throwback to all these stories in Luke chapter 24. When the resurrected Jesus approaches two of his disciples on the Emmaus Road. Maybe you're familiar with this story. Maybe not. It's three days after Jesus was crucified and he was buried. And it says that they're sad as they discuss all that's just happened, right? Remember, all their hopes were in Jesus to be the conquering king to set them free from oppression and tyranny. They didn't realize he was going to do it both physically and spiritually, but first he was going to do it spiritually. At his second coming, he does it physically and spiritually. But at this point, they're trying to connect all the dots and trying to figure it all out, and they're really sad because this guy that they placed all their hopes in has just been crucified and buried. And so it says that the resurrected Jesus in the flesh draws near to them on the road as they are discussing these things. 
but their eyes are kept from recognizing him. In other words, he's like a stranger. Like they knew what Jesus looked like, but their eyes are kept from recognizing him. And so it says that he draws near to them, and he's like, what are you guys talking about? And it says that they looked back at him with sad faces and said, haven't you heard about all that's happened? And so the resurrected Jesus is walking with them on this road, and he's talking with them, and he's explaining even from the scriptures why it was necessary for the Messiah to be crucified. But at this point, they still think he's just a stranger. Now look with me at Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read verse 28 through 35. It says this. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. Like he was just going to pass them by or continue onward. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. You imagine the look on their faces? I often want to imagine the look on his face. Right? Like, gotcha, you know? (laughs) Now I want you to notice something here. It doesn't say he left them to go somewhere else. Notice it doesn't say he's transported to another place. It simply says that they can't see him. In other words, his presence is with them in a dynamic yet invisible way as they broke bread together. There's a lot going on here, and I don't have time to get into it all right now. But this phrasing is extremely intentional. Look at verse 32. So they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, which is uh, the disciples and, and the other disciples, and those who were with them gathered all together. And they're saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and he's appeared to Simon. And then they told them what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Here's the point. I want you to catch this. Hospitality isn't just a trivial pleasantry. It's a means of revelation. It's a supernatural weapon by which the enemy is expelled and the reality of Jesus is revealed. These things don't happen. They don't just happen from a stage. It happens around the dinner table. It happens in living rooms and and over coffee. It happens when we invite others into our lives, not just to an event. It happens when we break bread together and invest in each other. It's not just a point, it's not just about pointing others to Jesus. It's about experiencing the love of Christ as we point one another to the love of Christ. He's present. It's about drawing near to God and each other because he's drawn near to us. And then when we draw near to God and one another, we also experience his nearness in a dynamic way that that the fact is that he is with us. 
You see, our homes and our, our church gatherings and our very lives are all opportunities to share this life in Christ with each other and everybody around us. And he meets us in it. But don't let those opportunities pass you by. They're very real opportunities to fellowship with Jesus himself. So don't neglect gathering together and don't neglect showing hospitality to the stranger. Epilanthanamai. Verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. So again, he's, he's speaking to this unity, right? He's speaking to this brotherly love for each other. Remember in their, contact, uh, in their context, um, many ha- had been arrested for their faith, and it was a risk to even associate with them. And so this was a continued call to love one another, even sacrificially, because for them it definitely would have been sacrificially. Okay? Verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Whew. If you, if you want another reason why I get choked up on some of this stuff, it's because I just get hit with all the like power of this stuff. Because I want you to see, first, it, it, it might seem like these things are disconnected, but they're not at all. Like this is a call to seek true satisfaction in Christ alone. Like it's, a, it's all about looking to Jesus and pointing one another to Jesus in the midst of a world that would pull us away from him and one another. That's what it's talking about. Like how many people have been pulled away from gospel community because of the love of money or sexual immorality? You see, sex and money are constantly trying to pull our attention off of God and replace him with what they offer in themselves apart from God. Like sex says, I'm your true satisfaction and even your identity. Do what feels good to you Like, if it feels good, it must be good. That's a direct quote from Snoop Dogg. (laughs) But that's a lie. It's it's, it's like a blatant lie. Right? Like, and everybody, honestly, you know it's a lie. It's a clear lie. Whether you want to admit it or not, that's a lie. Like, sex itself is an amazing gift from God. Because it points us to God. Like, and if you don't know that, then you ain't doing it right. Like, it's given, it's given to us as an invitation to draw near to him because it's designed to be an experience within covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. That's what this is talking about. Like, it's a reflection. It's all a reflection of the covenantal relationship that we have with God. See, it's way more profound than just saying, like, you shouldn't just, like, you, you hear this all the time. Like, you know, you shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. Like, that's true. That's, that's true, right? <laughs> 
But there's a glorious reason behind that. Like God wants you to get the why behind the what. Covenantal marriage illustrates the nature of the triune God. This is bigger than just, don't do that. Right? Like, it's way more significant. Like, remember, God is Trinity. He is three in one. God is unity in diversity. God is oneness, yet not sameness. He loves diversity. God's very nature is this selfless relational experience of intimacy. It's powerful. Like, this is characteristically who God is and how God desires to relate to us and how he desires for us to relate to one another in different ways, obviously. But it's why he designed covenant marriage as a reflection of his love for us as his people. This is why the sacredness of marriage often comes under attack in this fallen world because ultimately it's an assault on the image of God. And the way that he desires to relate to us as his people. If he can twist that, then he can twist your perspective of him. So when we lean into sexual immorality, which is any sexual desire outside of covenantal marriage, it will always leave us empty and unfulfilled. And anyone who's experienced that knows that. Because sex is ultimately designed to point us to the all-satisfying and unconditional covenant love of God. Like when we indulge in the twisted counterfeit of what we were designed for, when it's a twisted, it, 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 like it affects our souls in a really very real way. And it leaves us with this sense of abandonment and vulnerability and insecurity. Like we feel forsaken and alone and it'll shape the way we view God and people. And yes, this is for men and women. It'll eventually cause you to shrink back and isolate and hide either out of insecurity or shame. Of course, it also manifests as blatant pride. But hear me. The truth is, pride is just suppressed shame with an attitude. Think about that. Pride is just suppressed shame with an attitude. Let that break your heart when you see it, instead of getting all riled up. But Jesus is our Redeemer. Jesus is our redeemer and he offers us the unconditional unrelenting never ending me for you my life for your life covenantal love of god that fills the void and washes away all that failure and all that shame by nailing it to the cross this is who he is and what he's called us to and what he's called us to point to right this is why the church is called the bride of christ we are those who have received his eternal promise of intimate nearness, true and everlasting commitment, safe and secure, signed, sealed, and to be delivered. And if you have read the prodigal son story that Jesus tells in Luke 15, then you know he even put a ring on it. Some of you get that later. Just go to Luke 15. That's the kind of sacred relationship that we're designed for, and covenant marriage is to be a reflection of. Even though it is a fallen one, it's a shadow of the substance that is never-ending, 
unrelenting, and completely perfect. That's the way that Christ loves his church and invites us into relationship with God Almighty. So that's why sex and marriage is so sacred, because it's way beyond mere physical intercourse. It's physical, it's emotional, and it's spiritual, and it's sacred because it transcends the covenant with your spouse and points to someone greater than you both. The one that we're called to worship with all our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Again, it's all designed to point us to the love of God in Christ. And you don't need to be married to experience that. And all the single people said? Covenant marriage is a powerful thing. And when it's mistreated or trivialized or twisted, it does have devastating consequences. And so here... In Hebrews 13, God is calling us away from our love affair with the world. And he's calling us into the redeeming and all-sufficient grace of God in Christ. That's for everyone, no matter what your past or experiences are. And just like how sex outside of marriage leaves you with a sense of insecurity and forsakenness, so will your love affair with money. Because it will never satisfy And that security that so many seek is utterly elusive. No matter how much silver you get, that stuff's going to abandon you in one way or the other. Only God will never forsake you. And that's the point that he's making here. Sex and money are actually wonderful, godly things. Like when they're in their proper position, remember 1 Timothy 16 um, says, like money is, or excuse me, it does not say in 1 Timothy 16, 6, 10, blah, blah, blah. it does not say in 1 Timothy 6, 10 that money is the root of all evil. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Okay? That's really important. Money is just another tool to be used for the glory of God, and it can be in amazing ways. So you've got to just listen to that dollar bill and trust in God, right? He is our confidence. He is our helper. He is our provider, our strength, our joy, and only he has promised to never forsake you. So, verse 7. i got to speed this thing up. Woo. Remember your leaders. So it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So, this one gets taken out of context a little bit. So follow me, because most people read this and they think that, you know, he's talking about your pastor. That's what people read this. They think, well, he's telling you to consider the outcome of, like, my way of life and then imitate my faith, right? Like, look how great your pastor is, and, 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 and if his way of life is what you're looking for, then imitate that faith, and you too can have a great life like him. dun da 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 you know. Man of God here, hi. Right? Like, that's... A lot of people think that's what it's talking about, right? But it's not. Like, if that's the kind of life that you want, then, you know, go for it. But if it's not, then find another church where you can imitate that pastor. But that's actually not what this is saying. In fact, it's saying the opposite. Like, hear, hear this. Follow me. As we've learned in the past few chapters, this is written to an older church who've already endured a pretty pretty serious wave of persecution. And an entire generation of leaders have finished their earthly race and they've gone to be with Jesus. Some were probably even martyred for their faith. 
So the context here is that even that they weren't all pastors that he's talking about. He says leaders, which is an intentionally broader term for all who are running after Jesus and encouraging others to do the same. So this passage is actually saying, remember those who spoke to you the word of God. Again, notice it's past tense talking about those who have gone before. Right? And encourage them to run their race well. He says, consider the outcome of their life as in the way they finish their race all the way to completion. Look at that. Let that encourage you. The way they drew near to God and one another and didn't shrink back no matter what. And he says the same Jesus that they were drawing near to is the same one who's now with you. That same one that they were looking to is the same one we're looking to. He's not putting the focus on the leaders. He's putting it on Jesus. Do you see this? Like, praise God for the men and women who point us to the word of God, right? Yes, 1 Timothy 5.17 even says that those who labor in preaching and teaching the word of God are worthy of double honor. But that's not making it about the one who's laboring to preach and teach the word of God. That's pointing to the fact that it's not about, that it is about the word of God and not the opinions of man. That's the significance there. Do you see that? That's why I'm not up here giving you John Allen's perspective on things. I'm trying my best to draw out the beautiful realities and truths that are in this word. Right? And so that's what we're looking to. Like I pray, man. That, that you, you got, we all are called to preach this gospel, right? And I, and I know, and I, and I pray that you know, and I pray that you know that I realize that I have a deep accountability to point, accountability to point people to Jesus in spirit and in truth, to point them to his word. And to worship him in spirit and truth. Like I pray that when my race is done and when your race is done, if if ever there is any mention of our names, that it would be that we made much of Jesus and his word in spirit and in truth. Like that we drew near to God and we drew near to each other as we ran our race well and we left a gospel legacy that cheers the next generation on toward Jesus. Like that's what this is about. Like, what an honor. Like, what a commission. What a calling and what an offering to the king of glory. That's what we're all called to. Verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Again, there's an accountability here. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted to them, or benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. All right, if that's confusing to you, you're not alone, all right? So, again, remember this letter was written to a predominantly Jewish or Hebrew church in the first century. So they were being tempted to revert back to the accepted traditions of Judaism and their temple sacrifices, okay? And so one of those traditions was the peace offering or thanksgiving offering. It was an offering that symbolized peace and thanksgiving between God and his people in response to something that God had done for them, right? So, like, if God did something great, then they would offer this kind of thanksgiving offering, 
right? And so they would often bring, this is the way it would go, they would bring, they did this a lot. Like it wasn't just an annual thing, it was throughout the year. They would bring an animal to the priests and they would have it sacrificed. Again, as a way of saying thank you, and it symbolized the peace that they had or that they desired to have with God. And so this peace or thanksgiving offering was the only offering that could actually be eaten. And so it was very different from a sin offering, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. So this offering symbolized thanksgiving and peace with God and each other. So what would happen is they would offer the best parts of God first, or, or sorry, they would offer the best parts of the animal to God first on the altar, and it would be consumed by fire, right? And then they would eat the rest of the sacrifice along with the priests and the other worshipers in this sort of like festal gathering type scenario. So you would come to the altar in this like symbolic fellowship with God and with one another as like a fellowship meal of thanksgiving. It's like the first thanksgiving. Really. So now all of this was designed, remember, to point them to the fellowship that we would ultimately have through the blood of Christ and his sacrifice. Right? If it sounds a little bit like communion, there's a reason for that. But by the first century, the official Jewish Sanhedrin of the time um, and its sacrificial system had rejected Jesus as the true Messiah, but they had held on to these traditions. So even though they rejected the one that the entire system was pointing to, right, they still did these things. They lost the why behind the what entirely. And they were tempting these Jewish Christians to join them in these rituals. And if they did, they wouldn't be persecuted because... Judaism was an accepted thing of the time. So if they left that Christian thing and they came back to Judaism, then, you know, everything would be okay. And they were being told that if they didn't do that, then they had no peace with God or God's people. Because that was what it represented in Judaism. In other words, they were rejected by the Jews as outcasts. So here in verse 9, they're encouraged by this pastoral letter saying... Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. In other words, they've lost the why behind the what, so it's just food and nothing more significant. Because that was all supposed to be pointing to Jesus, and they've rejected Jesus. Verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. In other words, The altar which nourishes us is the grace we have obtained through Christ alone. And those who participate in the empty rituals rejected that grace. So they have no right to the true altar, which all of that was pointing to, which has always been the cross of Christ. Always. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It was always pointing to that. So then, you guys with me so far? You guys tracking? That's a little bit like, oh, rituals, this is strange. Just follow me. Okay. So... Then we get a shift from the thanksgiving offering to what's called the sin offering, which is an annual sacrifice where the animal would be brought not as a means of saying thank you, but as a means of atonement for sin. Okay? Like without the sin offering, the peace offering would, be, would not be accepted. That's really important. So every year they would bring an animal sacrifice to the priest and he would carry the blood of that sacrifice into the holy presence of God in the temple on behalf of all that offered this as a sacrifice, as an atonement for their sin, 
right? And so this, then that carcass of that animal, remember, you can't eat it, right? That carcass would be carried out of the city. It was seen as extremely unclean. So it was carried outside of the camp or, or the city, and then it was incinerated or destroyed outside of the gate, it was this realm of being outside the camp, outside the city of God. This was the territory of defilement or banishment from God's presence and God's people. You cannot draw near to God. You cannot draw near to God's people. You are defiled. That's what they did with the carcass of the animal that was the blood sacrifice for sin, right? This is why Jesus was crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem. He took your sin. He became that defilement. Look at verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. God became a man. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved to die. And he conquered death in the grave through the resurrection that paved the way to eternal life. And an eternal life that starts now. Not just one day when we die, but it starts now. Because we have access to him and his indwelling Holy Spirit that doesn't just come upon us, but can dwell within us. And guess what? You become the temple. You become closer to this God of eternity. He becomes closer to you, nearer to you, more intimate to you than your own skin. This is what we have in Christ Jesus. This means that you are the temple of God and that you are the everlasting city. That you, church people, are a chosen race, a holy nation. That you are the royal priesthood of all believers. This is who we are. This is the relationship that we have with God Almighty through Christ. It, and it's what the entire temple sacrificial system was pointing to. It was all designed to point to him. It was all designed to point to the access that we now have. Not just one day when we die. But even now in this dynamic way that we can experience him. Yes, it'll be even greater at his return. But even now we live in the overlap. So this is the letter that's written to tell them that they're not the ones, that they are not the ones who are being kept away from fellowship with God, but it's those who are looking to the blood of animals rather than the blood of their Savior and King to save them and bring them into fellowship that are rejecting and are shrinking back. Verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. It wasn't long after this letter was actually written that the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And all the temple sacrifices were not even possible. Like they worshipped the systems and completely missed the one that the systems were pointing to. Uh, theologian Dennis Johnson put it like this. He said, when compared to the promise of being welcomed into the coming city that abides forever, to be expelled from a community that has turned its back on God's grace in Christ is no great loss. That's what is being communicated here. That's what I want to draw out for you to see because it has 
extremely powerful implications for us now. Verse 15, through him, being Jesus, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Continually. You don't need any sacrifice animals anymore. He covered it. Like another way to say that right there, to continually offer up a, a sacrifice of praise, is an offering of thanksgiving. You don't need to kill an animal to do it. That's, look at this. Then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Like we have no need to bring a sin offering. It's been covered by Jesus once and for all for, for those who would receive him by faith. Our lives are now spent as one big eternal peace offering of thanksgiving. You ain't earning it. He already paid for it. You're just saying thank you with your life. For eternity. So what does this lifelong offering of thanksgiving look like? It looks like drawing near to God and each other. It looks like inviting all who don't know him into this gospel family, even when it's difficult, even when it's a sacrifice. These are the things that are pleasing and acceptable offerings to God. And they're not just acceptable or kind of pleasing. They light him up. And I don't know about you, but I for one am trying to light up the love of my God. Because I love him. I want to please him, not to pay for sin, but because your sin's been paid for in Christ. Verse 16, do not neglect. Oh, there it is again. Epilanthonomai. Number three, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There it is. This is our calling, to draw near to God and to one another and to invite all who don't know him into this gospel family that's founded on grace in Christ, right? Epilanthonomai, do not neglect, right? Like, do not neglect to gather together, Hebrews 10, 24. And then Hebrews 13 opens up saying, Epilanthonomai, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, right? And then Epilanthonomai, here we're told, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Because he's highlighting this stuff because we all have this tendency as sinful people to isolate from each other or to isolate from God's purpose and mission or to get stingy and cheap and withhold. And that's not just financially. That's like everything. Right? But the way that we live lives of thanksgiving for the grace of God is to draw near to God and to each other, to share in this life that we have in Christ with each other and our city and beyond. This letter... I'm, I'm wrapping it up, because so does he. He closes here with these final exhortations. In verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Again, I want to point out that the author of this letter is likely the pastor of this church. And he's encouraging the church towards the other leadership in the church. Like, yeah, he'd be lumped into that, but it's not just him. There's this community partnership theme here. Like, most people see leadership and think it only applies to, like, pastors, but that's not true. Like, I do want to quickly say here, by the way, 
it is an honor to pastor this church. Like God knows I've had my share of groanings. <laughs> but it's truly an honor to pastor this church. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I also want to point out that the word submit here comes from the word submission, right? Think about that. That's one of those words that gets twisted. Right? That means that you come underneath the mission that God's given us as a church to partner in it and to support and uphold it. Right? And so, again, this is a community effort. It's not just the role of one dude at the top. Like, we're all ultimately looking to Jesus. He's the dude at the top. Amen? <laughs> He's more than a dude. That's like, sorry, guys. <laughs> Verse 18. Pray for us. Whew. Again, that's a 20-week sermon right there. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. So please, he's saying, please pray for the leadership of our church. Um, he's saying, I truly believe in the power of prayer, right? And so do I. We talk about this a lot. And I know that this is, is crucial for the success and the mission and vision that God's given us here at Risen Church. Please pray for us. Like I know so many of you do. Keep it up. Continue in this. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, he's the great shepherd, by the blood of the eternal covenant. You see this? You see how it's tying all together? It's so good. Verse 21. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Whew. And just to show you how relational this church really is, he throws in a little bit here at the end. <laughs> it's, I love it. It's, he, he just like breaks formality and he's like, oh, 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 wait, by the way, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Like in other words, like chapter 13 there's 13 chapters in this letter. Like, that's brief. Like, you, you know this dude could preach for days. Like, <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm looking at a clock like, oh, no. He's 13 chapters in. All right. And then verse 23. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy. Send your greetings. Grace be with you all. Let's pray.